Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. I'm going to be introducing uh, Rick Williams here in a, in a moment. Um, he's, uh, I think as you all know, um, in charge of research ethics here at Griffith University and has substantial experience and um, serves as secretary of the Human Research Ethics Committee, which is the responsible body that, that will review all of the applications though not all the applications get to the Research Ethics Committee, it's, it's the responsible body for research ethics at this institute. I am Rick Williams, I'm the Manager of Research Ethics and Integrity, so there are actually two parts of my job. The ethics stuff is what you'll mostly, I hope, uh, deal with, with me and the team. The integrity stuff is where, largely when things go wrong, uh, so complaints, concerns, adverse events, that kind of thing, uh, but also disputes about authorship publication, but I won't touch on that on only lightly today. Um, my colleague, Dr. Gary Allen, gives a very in-depth but um, amusing seminar on research integrity and how to avoid the many traps in it, and I recommend that to you. You'll see it advertised through the Griffith Graduate Research School. In fact, I think he's doing one, two this week and two next week, so he does them quite frequently. Uh, about every three months he'll be here on campus or at Gold Coast doing one of those seminars. On the ethics side, the reason, quite apart from being a cool graphic, that's up there is, is because Frankenstein would have needed ethics approval. Yes, all the bits were dead, but once he put them all together and animated it, it's alive. And if it is alive, was alive, or could be alive, then human research ethics applies. So... What's the scope of human ethics? Basically anything to do with people. Or their thoughts, comments, opinions, and biospecimen samples, but not anything that lives on them. So anything microbial doesn't count. And before you, well, well while you smile at that, I did get a question yesterday on exactly that issue. Uh, the question was, if we're taking fecal samples and analyzing the metabolites from them and all the samples are de-identified. In other words, we can't tell who provided them. Do I need ethics approval? And after a bit of looking around the National Statement on Ethical Conduct and Human Research, the answer was no, you don't. And they were very pleased to get that, obviously, because it means it's a step they don't have to take. But had they identified the samples, or had they been actually meeting with the people who are going to provide the samples, then they would have needed ethics approval. So that's how the system mostly works. So... So research ethics applies if you're dealing with something that might, is or was or might be alive. My good self, anyone here planning to do anything with animals? Any research with animals? No. Occasionally that happens. Obviously we are, I do this with other schools such as medicine and ascitis who do a lot of work with animals. And then we have various versions of this little presentation. And Amanda will be present for that, and she'll largely handle that kind of thing. But it's not that I don't know about it, it's just that Amanda's the expert, and she's the best one to ask the questions of. Dr. Allen, I've referred to earlier, Gary's actually probably one of the three experts in Australia on research ethics. He's consulted by the National Health and Medical Research Council, the ARC, the ARHEC, the Australian Health Ethics Committee, and almost everything that you will read when you go into our site is something probably Gary's produced. So the, the Griffith University Research Ethics Manual, which incidentally is now in use by eight other universities, Gary produced it. He literally wrote the book. How many booklets are there? 42. 42 books. And it runs to over 1,200 pages. No, you don't have to read it all. No, you don't have to remember it all. No, you don't have to know it all. You just have to find what's relevant to your question and get to that chapter. The index is very comprehensive and it's interactive. So you basically call up the index. If you're using Google, just use the find function, type in a word, and generally it'll find what you're looking for, uh, often in more than one place, but that's the nature of these kind of interactive reference bodies. Professor Jane Clapton is the chair of the Griffith University Human Research Ethics Committee. Jane is the former head of school for nursing. She's also the former head of campus at Logan. She's also world authority on the ethics of disability research. She's also a former deputy chair of this ethics of this committee. And there are two members of the committee who don't have terms. One of them is me. I'm just a member of the committee 
pro tem, because it's in the constitution that I am, or the person occupying my job is. And the other one is the chair, because the actual chairperson is the senior deputy vice-chancellor. But he always nominates someone else who turns up, runs the meetings, makes the decisions. But they meet about every quarter just to go into things. That's the same for the Animal Ethics Committee as well. He's also the chair of the Animal Ethics Committee, but he appoints someone else. Dr Ian Peake is the chair of the Animal Ethics Committee. A couple of quick examples of when assumptions will lead you astray in ethics. You may not remember, but a couple of years back there was quite a kerfuffle in social media when it turned out that Facebook had been allowing people to modify posts so that they are either more or less complimentary or more or less positive than the, than the original post was. And then they were monitoring what responses they got from people who received the posts. Were they more or less positive in their responses and so on. Um, this had been going on for some weeks before anybody noticed, which I guess says something about Facebook. But when it was noticed, the defence was, well, we're working with the University of California in San Francisco, and you should don't refer any problems to them. When they checked with the UC, the UC people initially said, well, we have ethics approval, and then they found out they didn't. And in Australia, the human research ethics process is mandatory within institutions, but there's no real legal backing for it, in the sense that there's no actual legislation. There are laws which upon which incorporated, and the NHMRC and other acts refer to it, and the Therapeutic Goods Administration legislation refers to it directly, so you go to clinical trials about ethics approval, so there is legislation that refers to it. But in America, there's actually a common rule, and you have to have ethics approval in some circumstances, and this was one. Uh, so in the end, Facebook basically faced it all out, promised not to do it again, and no one really knows whether that's true or not. But they did point out that it was in their privacy statement that they can allow people to do research. Trouble is, their privacy statement, if you ever clicked on it, is one of those one-click things where it opens up and then you scroll through just endless reams of text, um, almost without spaces or even grammar in some cases. And Gary did the check and found out that to read all of the privacy statements which are associated with Facebook would take you 76 days out of a year he estimated. So quite a long way to, uh, to work that sort of thing out. Now, this didn't have any negative consequences for Facebook. It caused um, some rethinking at the University of California about how people understand when and when they're not. They don't need ethics approval. But the next one, and they used to do this with a university that shall remain nameless, but you all know who Rosa Parks was, basically set off the civil rights movement by getting on a bus and then, and it wasn't the first time, being told by the and sitting down in, she was sorry, an African American woman. She, because the, she was, had some issue with her legs. And so she sat down near the door, which was the whites only section of the bus. And when she was told to get off, she didn't. And from there, pretty much the entire civil rights movement took off. Martin Luther King's marches through Selma and so on followed this. So on the 50th anniversary, I believe it was, of that, the UQ decided that they would see what happened if you have people of various ethnicities and scruffy and not scruffy appearance were to try and get on a bus and ride free. What would happen? Unsurprisingly, well, I can tell you what happened, the, the bus drivers were more likely to let you ride free, but only just, if you were tidy, white and female. And much and less likely to if you were scruffy, non-Caucasian and male. However, in all cases, the people who were getting on were told to be polite about it. They were told to just explain the situation politely. And if, they were saying, if the bus driver said no, I'm sorry, you have to go and find another way, they'd thank them and get off. But what happened eventually was, on one occasion, some of the other passengers complained saying, no, let them ride. What the hell difference does it make? They're only going three stops or two stops, whatever it was. And the bus driver then had an argument. And at this point, one of the student participants piped up and said, look, no, it's fine, it's okay. Uh, this is part of a research project. Well, the bus driver called it into uh, to the dispatcher, the dispatcher called it into Translink, Translink called it into 
for Brisbane City Council, and the Brisbane City Council called the University of Queensland and said, what the hell is going on? Because no one's told us this is happening. And UQ then began an investigation. Uh, they eventually discovered that this was a, an associate professor and a PhD student. They had spoken with the PhD course convener about this, and he had said, mm, you don't really need ethics for that. Uh, that was actually wrong. You do. The net result was that there was disciplinary action taken against both the student and the supervisor. The supervisor was originally de initially demoted and the student was basically told that all the data they collected had to be deleted. There was subsequently an appeal. Uh, the supervisor was reinstated as an associate professor. He then took it to court and won. So he got all his back pay and he got, I think, I'm not sure there were damages, but there was some sort of payment to assuage his unhappy feelings. Um, I believe the PhD student was reinstated, but then it deleted all his work, so he had to pretty much start again anyway. He, he couldn't use his data, his data, right? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's so painful, yeah. all that work, and, and then you're told, no, you can't use that data. Um, you do need consent, either explicit or, in this case, implicit. And you need to explain to people what you're doing in some circumstances, which I'll go to. But wouldn't you probably also needed the approval of, of TransLink? Yeah. I think they would have had to have said, yes, we'll allow you to do that. Yeah. And, well, I'm trying to get that. <laughs> some <laughs> things just can't be studied uh, in Australia because you require their approval. However, if they had an actual ethics approval, it's because we've done work with Brisbane Transport and with Queensland Transport from the university here, uh, it's much more likely you will get uh, their agreement because as far, it's like a golden gate thing. Uh, ethics approved must be, must have this level of ethics approval to go and talk to anybody. Uh, in fact, the last dot point there, sorry, the second last dot point, you will need ethics approval to work with any other university or research centre, pretty much all levels of government. Uh, I actually came into the university from government, from the Department of Health and the Department of Community Services, where I led research for them. So. The other day I actually found a contract that I'd signed uh, for the department and I then had to give it to one of my staff because it would have been a conflict of interest for me to do the ethics review of the variation that they were asking for because I'd given the original approval from the department. So this kind of thing gets tricky and uh, can do. But often you're people are surprised to find that they need ethics approval to work with most NGOs now, particularly the big ones. Salvation Army has its own ethics committee, I think. Certainly, some of the bigger NGOs have their own ethics committees. That doesn't mean you don't need ethics from us if you're a Griffith student or academic. It just means that you'll get it from two ethics committees. Now, are any of you applying since some of your PhDs? Are you part of funding proposals? Sadly not. <laughs> uh, you need ethics approval to access the research grants. There's a small caveat on that, which I won't go into now, where you can get up some of the money before you get full approval. Uh, apparently I have, um, or the position, my position has the ability to agree to release up to 20% of the funding prior to full ethics approval. But the grants people will explain all that to you if you have any money involved. Alright, the objective of ethics review is, as it says, improving the quality of research activity. Generally, as people go through the ethics process, and certainly this is true of anything that arrives in front of the full committee, you will find that your project is better than it was after. Uh, without mentioning any names, and I'm not sure, remember the original Etanacept trial? The first one of those went through the full process from initial chat with us through to, uh, we won't do that, we'll go to two other ethics committees. Shopping around an ethics committee incidentally is unethical. The third ethics committee said no, take it back to Griffith. And then it went through the full process from advisory submit through the full approval. They then put up another one about six months later and everybody in the ethics committee went, this is so much better. And the project was very much better and went through in a much quicker and simpler process. Excuse me, how can you go to three different ethics committees? Um, but can't. If you are in this it's unethical. You can't shop around for an ethics committee. But there would be other organisations involved, involved that have other. Would that be the case that have ethics committees? Yes. So in this case, um, again, I'm not. Sure. It was another university ethics committee. 
and there's a private ethics committee called Belbury, who mostly do medical research and clinical trials. And their standards are at least as strict, if not more so, than the institutional ethics committees because they charge for it. They charge a lot for it. And then there tends to be drug companies who use Belbury because they're used to dealing with the international trials and multi-site research. But, but the uh, criteria for deciding where you should apply would be where is the principal researcher employed? Isn't that fundamentally how it is? A, a Griffith staff was the principal researcher? Yes. The Griffith staff is the principal investigator. For all of you who are, and all of you are, uh, high degree research candidates of one kind or another, uh, and this is not a slight on your abilities, the principal investigator on your ethics application will be your supervisor. You will still own all the IP and what you create. You will still be examined as though it was you did it, and it will still be you doing all the research. It's just that for insurance and liability purposes, um, the university legally requires someone who knows what they're doing to be identified as the person who will be supervising everybody else. So that would be a principal supervisor? Yes, generally. Principal, yes, the, the principal supervisor. Mm -hmm. Is the principal investigator or the chief investigator A, if you like, on your ethics application? And then you're listed as the research part of the research team? Yes. You are it, it would be described that you, you, it's your project, of course. It's not a, I mean, but it's Yes. Uh, you'll see it. It's on the front of the cover sheet for rooms. Uh, we'll say who is the principal investigator and your supervisor, and you'll nominate them and then there's a section for you, which is very clearly marked. Uh, I won't go into the animal ethics stuff today because not, none of you are doing anything with animals, except to note that anything done with chordate animals, anything with a backbone, requires ethics approval. Even monitoring or fish in a stream swimming by. So you can work with worms and insects as much as you like. And you without don't ethics approval. Without ethics approval. But uh, fish, birds, toads, yeah. you need ethics approval. And it's unlike the Human Ethics Committee, everything goes to the full committee with the AEC, although the, Amanda's been successful in amending that slightly so that some stuff will be done by the executive. Uh, that's because the... Animal Ethics Code is much more prescriptive than the National Statement on Ethical Conduct in Human Research. And that's because people seem to care more about the research we do on animals than we do about the research we do with people. So if something were to arrive in the media about Griffith is doing, we aren't doing research with dogs or cuddly looking kittens, or what was the recent one in the paper? What's that? Greyhounds. Um, the University of New South Wales is in trouble for doing work with greyhounds, where they're basically reducing the oxygen content until they pass out to test cardiac resuscitation techniques. Is it funded by the Racing Commission? I have no idea. I suppose after the New South Wales government banned greyhound racing, there's a lot of surplus greyhounds. I'm not sure what, what the thinking was there, but mm. I don't think they thought hard enough. What of research with flora, with plants? With plants, go for your life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there is a theory, not just James Lovelock, but there is a theory. There are a couple of theories going around that plants communicate uh, with each other uh, and that they can feel it when you tamper with them. Yeah. But unless you can provide a kind of scientific rationale for that, at the moment it sits outside the ethics. Uh, a number of things sit outside there, sit outside ethics. And because you're not in arts, I'll use arts as the example. So if you're doing something that's journalism and the output is journalistic, it'll be published in a newspaper or something like that, uh, it can be exempt from ethical review, even though you are interviewing people or asking their opinions. Similarly, if you're making a documentary that will be put in cinemas or SBS will put up as part of its documentary series, again, it can be exempted from ethics approval for that. Can we just clarify that? Because I write a column for a newspaper at the moment, and they keep on asking me, and I do sometimes talk about business and business ethics and things. And in the past, I just go out and interview somebody who might be certain to seek ethics approval for it. It's part of journalism. Part, yeah, so I'm fine to still keep on doing that. But with, sometimes, like I am looking at research journals that are a little bit similar as background for a kind of like a story, like I'm doing a story on. Narcissism in the workplace. Sure. 
yeah, there's no, no conflict of interest. Well, no. And under what hat are you wearing when you do that? Or is it as a Griffith employee? Absolutely okay. not. No, no, right. just as Claire as a businesswoman. Yeah, it's, yeah. You, you, it doesn't, ethics doesn't apply to, well, ethics does apply to, to life, but it, our committee <laughs> does not have authority over you no. for that. No, they just had put recently that um, usually I'd be identified as Claire as a written businesswoman. Now there's such putting Claire has an MBA and she's studying for a doctorate. And they've just put at a Brisbane university. If they were to put at Griffith University, then would there be any implication? No, no. I don't think Great. they are. Provided the interviews you do or the data you collect from people is not meant for use in a research project, mm. if it's primary Absolutely use, not, no. if the primary use is for yeah. this other activity, yeah. then sure. Yeah. Let, me, let me give you a related, uh, my own experience. I teach a course in international negotiation, and I have an exercise that I do purely for teaching purposes for years and years and years that gathers some data. I had a journal that contacted me, and, and I'm not required, that's teaching, that's not research, right? Mm -hmm. I had a journal that contacted me and asked me if I would, I would write an article on a particular area, and I thought it would be useful to include that data that I had gathered purely for teaching purposes. At that point, when I decided to use that, I had to go to the committee and make a request to use it, because I, now it's suddenly become research data. Now, that was... Two years ago, a year and a half ago, that I did, I went through that, and I received ethical approval to do that. I continue to gather that data for teaching purposes. I have no intentions to use it for. for I'll actually gather that data next week in my class. I, I have no intentions of using that data for research purposes. But if I choose to, I will have to then request. So even though you didn't ask the human subjects for consent, it, it was it's defined as teaching. This is a human research ethic, so it's only research activity. It's really, it's only okay, research yeah, it, it, Are there variations to that fundamental Research concept? is very broadly defined. Yeah. In Dr. Crump's case, the data he's using is non-identified. So yeah, there was that element as well. It was de-identified. Yeah, no, yeah. 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 And on that basis, mm -hmm. um, it was a very easy sort of tick to run yeah. through the okay. process. Anonymous has a very specific meaning in human research ethics. It means you don't know who they are. That's a researcher. And, yeah, and you can't work it out. There are sections of the national statement that are involved. I won't quote them because at the moment I can't remember them. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So anonymous means one thing. Non-identified means that you may have collected it in an identified form, mm. but you've taken out all the identifiers, and there's no way you can work backwards from what you've now got to identify the participants, not directly or indirectly. This gets tricky when you're dealing with large, complex data sets, obviously, where they collect a lot of demographic information and then other information about ethnicity, age, you can begin to build up profiles, and this was my previous life before I joined the university, so we have to be very careful with that kind of thing. And Dr. Allen, in fact, has recently put up a post, on he's part of a consultancy as well with the other two leaders in research ethics in Australia, Mark Israel and Mark Barr, who are, and Colin Thompson, who's also the Emeritus Professor of Constitutional Law at University of Newcastle, and they all got together and so they have this uh, group called ARIX, the Australian Human Research Ethics... I forget what the C stands for. Consortium. Thank you, Consortium. And they have a website, and there are po all their posts are fascinating reading about what does human ethics mean in this kind of situation, or if you were doing... People tried this and thought they didn't need ethics approval, and subsequently got into serious trouble. It it's makes, makes a very interesting reading. So, since I'm on it, human research has quite a wide ambit, as I said. It covers everything from stopping people in the, in the street and asking them if they can give you 10 minutes of their time to answer your five questions, through to medical therapies and clinical trials of drugs, devices, things of that nature. Only the last stuff, stuff about medical therapies, uh, testing physical, intellectual and emotional response, with vulnerable or marginal populations is the kind of thing that will land in front of the full committee. Uh, we try not to overuse the full committee. We get a thousand applications a year and about 1,500 variations. Some of them are the size of an application or they're effectively the same thing. And sometimes variations are so complex and so risky 
that we have to take the whole thing back to the full committee and go, this was approved as low risk originally, but what they want to do now involves something working with people with mental health issues, for example, that require approval from the full committee. But interviews, surveys, focus groups, that sort of thing is what we call negligible risk, which means no more than inconvenience. So yeah, can I have 10 minutes of your time would be negligible risk stuff. Uh, you can, it's not true that you have, that people who are participating in research must be anonymous. And it's not true that the data you collect must be confidential. There's in fact no guarantees of anonymity or confidentiality in the National Statement on Ethical Conduct in Human Research or in the Australian Code for the Responsible Conduct of Research. What you need to do though is get them to agree if you're going to identify them specifically. So in the, there is a consent form. Um, there are templates for consent forms in booklet 22, appendix 1 to Griffith, to the Griffith University Research Ethics Manual, which uh, can be adapted. So you just take the bits you want, delete all the rest. It's also not true that you need written approval. In your case, I think you said you were dealing with directors of corporations. Yeah, for people in those sorts of positions, you can get verbal consent. You can just walk in, especially if you're recording it. Yeah. Uh, you can say, um, I'll just, for the record, state that I'm talking to, and now ask you formally, do you agree to, to participate in the research? Or words to that effect. Okay. If you're doing something like survey monkey, let's say you are surveying 100 farmers, let's say. Farmers? Yeah. <laughs> Sure. So, you will be using the mailing list from, let's say, Farmers Federation. So, you will get approval from them. Do you then have to go and get approval from each one of the farmers? They've given you the list. Yeah, let's say they're giving me the, uh, yeah, the mailing list. Sure. Two point, well, there's two levels to, yes. the, to an answer to that. Yes. First off, if they give you their list, you'll know they'll also need to give you an approval under the Queensland Privacy Act, which says that they have given you the list. And the information that on your survey, there'll be a cover sheet usually, or a front page, will have to indicate that you were given the list by the Farmers Federation. And that's how they can contact the people. Alternatively, they can contact them for you. That's actually preferred. So if they send it out, or if they send out a link, if you're doing this online, which is actually better, uh, and then you need a minimum of 100 people and they send it to 500 people, that's still okay. If they send it out and it's anonymous, in other words, you don't ask people for their names or contact details like email addresses, then you can put a sentence on the cover sheet that says by opening the survey, you are deemed to have consented or you are assumed to have consented. You don't actually need to get anybody to say in so many words, I agree. Their click is consent. Yes. It's like a one-click contract. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this would be the point where I point out that according to legal advice from our very own legal services unit, um, which arose from an issue a couple of years back, uh, the participant information materials in the consent form as a package are deemed to be a form of contract between the university and each participant um, and it's through the university with you acting on behalf of the university. So what you're actually doing is getting them to sign a contract. That means working backwards a couple of key things. A research ethics approval is really specific. It's whatever was in your application and nothing else. So if you think to yourself, damn, this isn't working, I need to get 50 more people or I need to modify my methods, you would be outside your ethics approval at that point, which means you're also outside the insurance and indemnity arrangements for the university at that point. It may not be such a big deal if you're doing arts and business, but if you're doing, say, medical trials, changing the way you do the trial, and then someone gets an adverse event and you haven't told us about it, gets to be fairly serious. It can result in some fairly serious consequences, but it's easy to fix. Um, the application process, which I'll show you a bit later on, is not particularly lengthy anymore, as Dr. Crumb points out. But the variation process is really simple. It's yeah, an email. It really is. I, I like that you kept that in RIMS. It's just you send an email. You send really an email great. to research hyphen ethics or to me directly or to the people who are listed at the end of this. It's on the stuff we've got. To Kim, Janelle, myself, 
saying, I want to change this and this and this and this. It doesn't matter how many things there are you want to change. Put it all in one email if you like, that's fine. We may come back to you saying, can you also give us copies of the modified materials? But that would be it. And it's meant to be really easy because you really have to keep in mind that you have to change, if you change anything, you have to tell us for legal and other reasons. When you, when you say you have to change anything, just for instance, in my proposal, I'm thinking about the situation will send this for me, but after negotiations, they say they don't want to do. So I go to Horticulture Australia, and they said, yes, we'll do it. Yep. Something like that, I have to tell you. I'm not going with this guy, now I'm going with this guy. Yes. You just let us know. We will ask you for a copy of the approval if you haven't provided it. But the email between you and them, including the last one that says, yeah, sure, we're happy to do that, is really all you need. So keep your emails, basically. Who's got the mailing list? Was the Farmers Federation passed, or is it a different mailing list? I'm thinking a diff different, if for some reason yeah. I can go with Farmers Federation, I may go to Horticulture Australia. And use their mailing list. And use them. Yeah, yeah or ask them to mail it from Sure. Yeah. Okay. Applications. I won't go through this in great detail. There are levels of review. As far as you're concerned, there's an application. This is all us. It's so that you understand what's going to happen when you, when you hit submit. Generally, 60% of the applications we get are negligible risk. So they're reviewed mostly by the Office for Research. We may consult with the chair or deputy chair if there's an issue that we're not sure about. But generally they're only reviewed directly by the Office for Research. The turnaround is within a week. So allow, at least, allow yourself a week from the point we hit submit to the point we should be getting something back from us that says there's some level of approval. And if you haven't heard from us, give us a call. You know, we can escalate it. Uh, the E1 is where things are a bit more complicated or where you're starting to deal with the issues of pushing, poking, prodding, puncturing people. Low-risk research can include things like taking blood and body specimens such as phlegm, urine, that sort of thing. But it tends to be less complex research. Again, it's, there's an initial review by the Office for Research, but it's put to one of the chairs or deputy chairs to make the final decision. E2 is a three or four person panel of the committee. All the committee members get involved in this, but not for each application, obviously. That's where it's still low risk, but it's becoming more complex, and often there's issues of vulnerability or specialised issues around, um, can't be mental health per se, but there might be some checking of mental issues that are involved that don't fall into the DSM-5. Sorry, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Manual Procedures of the American Psychiatric Association. Um, if you're in that, then there's a special part of the national statement which applies and it has to be referred to the full committee. Anything that's more than low risk or that deals with things like pregnant women, fetuses or fetal tissue, genetics, mental health, intellectual disability, cognitive impairments, People requiring ongoing serious medical care, so if someone who's unconscious in a hospital, for example, that sort of thing is automatically referred to the full committee. Unless, over on the left there, it already has approval from another ethics committee. You can, if you are doing work with more than one institution, it's possible you'll also need approval from more than one ethics committee. The, the national statement requires the ethics committees to minimise the duplication of ethical review. The public hospitals deal with it, and some of the private hospitals, deal with that by being part of a mutual recognition arrangement which only applies to them. Uh, there's a new mutual recognition arrangement which is being put up by the National Health Medical Research Council which this university will attempt to join later this year and which will include the hospitals so that once one ethics committee approves it, everybody else goes, that's nice, tick. What they'll do is agree to monitor it as they're required to do for anything that happens on their facilities or using their staff. Prior review is done like a negligible risk because it already has it's been through the process. We won't do it again and variations I covered a moment ago. They're meant to be quick and simple. And it doesn't matter how complex the variation is, it's still going to be quicker and simpler than the full application. Some variations get very complex and very involve new risks and we have to deal with that.
All right, the expedited review system. Can you all access the Griffith portal? All right. On the left, you'll find research. Click on that. And then over in the middle, you'll find human ethics or ethics, and then underneath that, human ethics. Click on human ethics, and it will take you to a thing called the Applications and Forms page. And on that, there will be a big red button that says Access RIMS. It looks like this. So the big red arrow is pointing to the big red button. Actually, what the big red arrow is pointing to is about four words next to the big red button. Please, open, That's actually a link. Open that first before you think of pressing the big red button because that's the guide. That tells you how to use RIMS. It's very good. It was user-tested. Sorry, it was developed by a former member of the staff of the ethics team user-tested extensively with people like yourselves, and then written up with screenshots that say, do this, and then you'll see this. And you pretty much can't go wrong if you follow the guide. So have it open beside you as you've got, once you hit the access rooms thing, and it should be fine. If there are any problems, call Janelle. You'll find her contact details at the end. And that's what the application forms site looks like. As you, although you can't see it here, um, as you scroll down, it tells you how to do each of those kinds of application. It's a bit more complicated for a full review. You have to use a thing called the National Ethics Application Form. An expedited review, the expedited review system, the RIMS system, is interactive and paths open and closes you answer questions. Generally speaking, you can do it in about a half an hour. Uh, the NEF, on the other hand, the National Ethics Application Form, is or can be as much as 45 pages long. <laughs> it's also interactive to a, up to a point and asks a lot of supplementary questions and you are asked for quite a lot of detail. Uh, in it you will see things like NS 4.5.1. That's a reference to the, to the section of the national statement that it's referring that that question is about. And that's right through it. So if you want to look up why they're asking you that, that's why. You fill out the NEF on the NHMRC website and then download the, peer, the result as, a, as an Adobe PDF which you will attach to an application through a very short application through the RIM system and then we take it from there. This full review is often it's going to be like medical, biological or, it's, or psychological kinds of research where there are vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. like, uh, that's really the kind of, uh, a lot of business research is, is going to go through the expedited process. Mm -hmm. And even if it, you think it won't, when you go through the RIM system, it, will, it does a check as you do answer the first few questions about are you doing work with people with children, are you doing work with, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, are you doing work with people with mental health issues. If you answer yes to any of those, it will then start asking subsequent questions. Usually after one or two of those subsequent questions, it will go stop and go and fill out an EVE. If you arrive at the point in ours where it says go fill out the EVE and you're not doing medical research, call me or call Kim and we will either explain how you may have misunderstood what the system is asking you for or how you, prob how you really aren't proposing to do what they're... So, for example... Uh, not you, but honours students, bless them, are very keen not to get this wrong. They think of ethics as an exam. And they'll go, well, look, I'm not really checking. I suppose it's possible some with mental health issues could be part of my research. And I'll get to, yep. Then I'll ask the subsequent questions. And then it comes to us. And we're, we're going, an honours year, and you want to put it through the full committee? No. So then we bring, we bring them and call, we email them and contact the supervisor and say, look, you really need... So if you're thinking, if you're over at a point where it says, no, fill out, uh, fill out a NEF, by all means call us and we will check. And you might have checked the wrong box somewhere along yeah. the way. Well, yeah. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're too sincere. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm not going to encourage you to not tell exactly what's, what, you're what, you, what you're doing, but uh, it's given that we have a limited number of characters in which to ask you questions, sometimes it can be hard to interpret what it was you were being asked. We are, and the forms are designed for everyone to use, whereas the schools have specific needs and issues that sometimes need to be explained.
Right, during an ethics review, there are a few things. All right, out of all of this, when you're doing your ethics, I suggest you take this slide, and not the next one, but the one after it, blow them up to A3 size and shove them on the wall in front of you when you're doing your ethics application. This one lists out the key things that we'll be looking for when, we go, when we're doing the assessment or review. You need to tell us how you're going to recruit people into your project. And that's what they're the key issues. Who, where, how many, what kind of... Are you screening people for... To, are you setting age limits? So are you working with children or are you excluding children? When you create the participant information, that's the stuff we'll be giving the participants to explain what it is you're asking them to volunteer for. Uh, it needs your names and contact details, so every member of the research team. Uh, it needs a brief but accurate description of the participant experience from their point of view, if possible, and a clear but brief statement of the risks, risks and benefits and how they'll be able to get some feedback on what you found when you finish. Informed consent is probably the most important thing you'll do. It doesn't have to be written, but the researchers are responsible for assessing capacity to consent. So if you've for example, if you're doing work with children, you probably need to get parental consent if you're doing work with children who are 14 or younger, certainly if they're 7 or younger. Uh, and those are just guideline age groups. It can vary depending on the research you're doing. You can use a combination of all verbal or all written or mixed, so you can give them the written participant information but get verbal consent, or you can give a verbal description of the project and get written consent or do the whole thing verbally. If you're recording sounds and images that needs to be specifically consented whether it's verbal, written or mixed. And if you're collecting sensitive information and by that we mean asking for things like sexual orientation, religious affiliation, that sort of thing. Finally, and this may apply to you, when you're getting consent you need to understand there are forms of consent you can get. Specific consent is limited to exactly what's in the consent form. So exactly what you ask them to do. Extended consent means we'll give you a form of word that's in the template which allows you to say that you can use the information you collect in this project or in any similar or related project. And open or unspecified consent means basically you're asking people to allow you to use their, their information as often as they, you want from then on, provided it's ethically approved. Sorry, if, um, if that was your example for sensitive information, what would be non-sensitive information? Almost anything else. So, occupation? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. You can ask for... Um, date of birth. You can ask for identifying details. You can ask for the names. That's fine. Uh, under opinions and views, if it doesn't touch on... Or even if it does, so long as it's clear in the consent form that that's what they're agreeing to do. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. As long as they understand, as long as you're... As long as you're convinced they're competent to understand, and following that, they agree, you can ask almost anything. Right. We have approved research with foreign fighters, where people are, researchers from the university, Skype, contact people who are fighting in Syria. We've approved research which involves contact with the organisations which allow them to go there. We've approved research which, uh, with organ traffickers. We've approved research with human traffickers. But did we approve them to actually go meet them? Yep. They did we? Were their lives not being put in risk? Yes. Did they guarantee, oh really, we approve that? Yes. I thought that's where the line was drawn. Nope. Oh really? <laughs> you need to give... What does our insurance company say about that? Oh, I'm sure they just kind of bury their head in their hands. You know. <laughs> don't you have to go to the Don't you have to go to the Yes, you do. Law. And yes, they did. Yes, really? Research is not by its nature risky. In some cases, people do very risky yeah. research. Well, they should, because those are so there's some important questions. Absolutely. And issues around criminality, and issues around war and peace. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, as you'll see a bit later, I'll save it for the next slide, but the fact that you think it's really, really dangerous research doesn't mean the Ethics Committee won't agree with you and then approve it. 
what you will need to do is give some indication of how you will protect the safety of the participants and yourself. Also, yeah, and you, and any people, any research assistants or others who are working with you. We approved a research project where someone was doing dance therapy in Colombian prisons. Dance therapy in Colombian prisons? Absolutely. That's interesting. Did we really? Yep, 21, 22 year old female researcher. Australian. Oh, she wasn't of Colombian heritage. Ooh. She spoke Spanish. Well, that's good. So, people are usually surprised to find out that the Ethics Committee will agree with this stuff. Was that a PhD? Yes. Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay, as a point out, participant identification, sure. People, you can identify people, and they, some people will only agree to be part of your research if you identify them. Yes, I feel very strongly about this. Make sure my name's in there. Fine. Even if you didn't want them to, or even if you didn't want to identify people in the first place, if you feel it's important to have that person's opinions in there, and the only way you can get them, Fine, modify the consent form, send it to us, we'll approve it, and back it goes. Then you know, they just sign it, and you're good. Um, for research materials, you will need to send us copies of surveys, questionnaires, interview questions, that sort of stuff. Uh, it's so that the, uh, the research, the ethics committee, has some understanding what's the sensitivity of what you're asking. It doesn't mean they want, they'll say no. In fact, out of almost 5,000 applications that I've seen over the last four and a half years with the university, we've rejected just one. And in the end, we had a conversation with them. They modified it slightly and they got approved. So technically, I guess we rejected exactly none. It may go through a process, but you will get there in the end. Well, interview questions, I'd say other than 20. And by the time I finish, oh my god, I have two more to <laughs> Do I have to submit them again? Those two. Oh, additional questions? Yeah. The questions are representative that yeah. you submit. It's, it's, not, it's, no, it's not It's not the final like you're, No. We don't ask for that, do we? If you are changing the direction of your research yeah. by adding a new form of questioning, yeah, that's then you would need to. But if all you're doing is adding or subtracting questions from something that's already been approved, yeah. unless it's sensitive information, you're good to go. That's within the, you'll get something you can ask me, but I'll just write back to you within the scope of your current approval. I think the application specifically says to give us a representative sample of your interview questions. Some interviews, I guess, are unstructured. So yes, it well, exactly. What key themes would be yeah. you're trying to find out, yep. but how that goes could be. Just the key themes is all we need in that sort of situation. It's often simpler just to attach the, the whole thing because you've already got it. Yeah. But if you want to go through and extract what you believe are the most ethically sensitive themes or questions, you can do that too. Uh, sorry, instead of attaching the whole thing. And finally, there are times when you'll need to give a detailed explanation. Generally, this is around things like what we call limited disclosure. The psych people use this a lot, but it's happened in other areas. I can't remember one from business, but weirdly, arts wanted to conceal the real reason they were asking people to do things so that they could get a sense of what they understood or misunderstood out of what they were being asked. Again, that sort of thing will get approved. Um, so they specifically wanted to conceal. Yes. Yeah. And I guess with but the bus driver things, I was thinking of that. You wouldn't want the bus drivers to know that people were kind of trying to get it would really otherwise. It's the research be, question yeah. that you're seeking yeah. an answer yeah. to. So, uh, exactly. Concealing from but them, we still need to let the organisation yes. know yeah. why we're doing that yeah. so that yeah. if it blew up as it did, mm. then it could be explained. Yeah. There's a difference between limited disclosure, which is just not telling people exactly what you're doing, but people who are involved know it's research, and if they ask, you tell them. And what we call active concealment or deception, which is where even if they ask, you won't tell them, or you'll tell them something a complete lie, or not a complete lie. You'll tell them something else. So the psych psychology people, for example, use this a lot, where they tell you it's about watching you watch television, but it's actually about watching you, how other people watch you watch television. And so there'll be three or, three or four people in the room and then there'll be, there'll be cameras watching how other people watch each other reacting to what's on the screen. Um, that's a real example. And they get more complicated than that, particularly if you're doing, dealing with things like illegal behaviours. 
where clearly we don't necessarily want you to go knocking on the door of the local drug dealer to ask, so can I have 20 minutes of your time to answer a few questions please? You may not want to identify yourself as a researcher in those circumstances. So it's... I guess the, what is it, the, the milligram study in the 50s, the, the classic study of deception where you're you're brought into a, the psychologist brings you into a room, and in the next room is the person who's supposed to answer questions. And if they get it wrong, yeah. you shock them. And you're not That's shocking anyone, really. But, but the person eventually starts to scream, and then after a few, uh, a few trials of screaming, then there's silence, as if you've actually killed them. <laughs> and it was a study that, it, it was an important research question, to, um, yes. because it related back to, like, Nazism and Hitler and 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 how could a whole nation follow such an evil authority and and there was it but it was in increments was the answer in, in increments I don't know that you'd give that through an ethics committee today no I'm pretty sure you wouldn't you probably wouldn't. <laughs> in fact but, um, uh, Gary uses an example of stuff that you will not get approved yeah but but um, that's part of the reason that the whole at research ethics review process emerged because of studies like that. It was, I guess when it was published it was just shocking to people that that was actually conducted. Well, um, there was a lot of research done by the Nazis and well, yeah. by the Japanese yeah. during the war, which in itself was valuable research, but completely unethical. Um, so, the lives of but the a lot of it was bad research as well. So, one of the reasons behind this is that it has to be not only ethical but good research. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. That's unethical. You can't waste the participants' time. It's just speeding on here. Stuff worth remembering. So, okay, this is the other one that I suggest you block to three, stick on the wall in front of you. If you're asking yourself, do I need ethics approval? You probably do. So, I'd suggest you go to the rooms page. One of the first questions is, do you want to test if you need ethics approval or ethics review? And you can go, yep, and I think it's four or five questions, which will quickly tell you whether what you're proposing to do should keep going. And if it reaches a point where it says, yes, you do, then you just keep going. It kicks you on to the next question. All right, as soon as possible is the answer to all questions. When you're doing your ethics application or when you're talking to us or dealing with the issues, as soon as possible is the answer to all questions starting with, when should I? So, uh, as Dr. Crump pointed out earlier, while particularly if it's going to the full committee, you should get your confirmation first before submitting the ethics. You can start preparing it, and probably should, almost from the moment the concept of what you're going to do is in your head. Because you really have to build this stuff in as you go. Otherwise, you're trying to retrofit things later on, like the consenting arrangements around participant groups who don't speak English as a second language, for example, and you were going to use verbal consent. Suddenly that's not looking so cool, such, such a good idea, because recording would be better. And so if you, you then got variations to do with things. Again, it's a simple process, but why add to your workload? I mean, really, uh, at the research design and methodology, when you start to think, when you begin to start thinking about that, even before you've had a conversation with your supervisor, if you're a student, that's really where ethics is going to kick in. I mean, you really start to say, well, what are the ethical issues here? Because you can waste a lot of time developing something that's just going to become really difficult. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's out. modifying your research question because the the methodology that would would study that research question has some ethical issues that are just too difficult. I should point out that the ethics committee, in fact, all the levels of approval, will usually come with conditions. Um, I've only seen a handful, literally half a dozen, no more, applications that went from submitted to full approval at the first pass. Mostly, you'll get some level of approval. You'll see where, what they are in a moment. Uh, and conditions or questions from the committee. And sometimes the committee and particularly the lower levels, we try not to get into the issue of your methodology. That's your issue. You've already done that with the school and your supervisors. But um, I think the record is 62 conditions. The average for a negligible risk review is about eight. 
but then a couple of them are purely administrative stuff like make sure you get the head of school and your supervisor to sign this or they don't sign anything anymore. Go in and tick it off and then we'll tell you. There's a little blurb about it. And this is where they go to do that and this is how it's done. Um, but it can be quite extensive. Um, one of the, from the last meeting of the Ethics Committee, one of the applications is a revise and resubmit, but there's 39 questions that are going back to the researchers. Most of them, please clarify, please explain, please provide additional, please briefly outline why you're doing this kind of thing. The Ethics um, Committee then, when the research has been done or annually, do the researchers need to provide a report yep. back to mm -hmm. Mr. Whether yes, extension and the system will automatically contact you. Okay. Um, and if you don't respond the first time, we have what's called an increasingly terse series of reminders. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth one is, congratulations, your ethics approval is suspended, which means you have to stop. You are no longer legally covered by the university at that point. When was the period? Uh, you get they come back, and they come out fortnightly. Yeah, but, but so you've got about two months. Yeah. But, but in terms of, um, um, it'd be a year before you start to yes. submit a report. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry. That's a, and the is that quite report. a short, is there a template? A, just a, yeah, it's all done online. It's basically four right. questions these days. <laughs> so uh, you tick the boxes and, and yeah. the system goes, thanks, and closes, uh, and then alters some of the internals that we see. <clears throat> if in doubt, don't guess check with your research ethics advisor or the manual or call the office for research. I can't stress that one enough. Um, when it's not an exam, we're not ogres. Uh, we're actually quite approachable. And as you'll see later on, we can fix most things, provided you let us know. When you're doing this stuff, ask yourself, would you volunteer for the activity described in your application? And this isn't so much about what you're planning to do as how you're describing it in most cases. Because remember, what you, the Ethics Committee, you should write as though it's an intelligent lay audience. You hear me? Nothing too long, but don't make it too short either. There was the application at the last meeting. They had 150 questions, didn't they? Yes. Who's going to answer 150 questions? On a survey. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, would you do this? So if the researchers said, would I do that? It, well, who, who's going to answer? <laughs> And I think you had 20 minutes to do it. Oh, they, they yeah, said, yeah, they said they you could answer it in 20 minutes. Some were, well, yeah. some asked you to, yeah. they're the usual five-part Likert scale yeah. in a lot of places, but they're quite, they're asking you to, um, to make some fairly complex ethical judgments in, in some cases as well about your own behaviour. So. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly propose that, but whether you're going to get any data at the end of the exercise is, I think a fair question that supervisors would be asking their students. Yeah. My other job that I have, have one of our surveys we do is 120 questions, and I have to make sure I say to to the centres that complete it that you don't have to answer 120 questions. You will skip through multiple questions because they don't actually, you know, have certain aspects. No, because otherwise, yeah. you no know, one was filling it out. It was because they were opening it, going, I haven't got time to answer 120 questions. Yeah. <laughs> But they need to be there. But it's yeah. Do, you, do they unfold as in a path sort of way? Yeah. So, so yeah, if they tick no, then it jumps ten questions. Yeah. So you can structure it. You know, you need a, a web person but to help you structure. Participants that. need to know yeah. that, that because otherwise, yeah. It's, mm, it's a bit of a headshake. In 1975, when the university opened, I was one of the first undergraduate students here. I and my now wife then girlfriend was one of the 431 first undergraduates. How interesting. I was, became a physicist, became a mathematician, who eventually became a statistician. And I see these big data sets, I'm going, <laughs> and God's name, you plan to analyze that <laughs> in any way that will give you anything useful. Particularly when, in most cases, they're not going to conduct any kind of mathematical or statistical analysis of the results. Apparently, it's all, all there's a qualitative it. Really? Anyway, that's just me. Ethical issues don't mean your research can't or won't be approved. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, we'll deal with them, we'll work with you. You may get some interesting questions from the Ethics Committee, but generally you'll get through the system. Research ethics is a practical exercise. Match activity. In the application, give us some sense that you've matched your activity to your resources. 
and that the benefits outweigh the risks. That's the benefits to you, to the community, to the participants. Generally, the more risky the research is for the participants, the more direct benefits there should be for them. For neg negligible risk research, in other words, stopping people asking to fill out a survey, the benefit can be as little as the training you get in doing the research. That's actually a significant benefit, but not one that's necessarily available to the community or the participants, but still. This usually surprises people. If you're be brief, be clear, be interesting. Remember, we read thousands of these things. Uh, the average review time is 26 minutes. Obviously, for the stuff that goes before committee, it's a lot longer. But for, remember, most of them are negligible risk reviews. So we're going through it really fast, reading stuff, getting a sense of is there anything that makes this a higher level of risk than what we're looking at. Are, are all the bits we need there? After, after that, it's a case of good tick. Okay, and the last two are really, really crucial, and this is where the research integrity stuff comes in. Stuff goes wrong. Stuff goes wrong all the time. It's the nature of research. Stuff doesn't go the way you thought it would. If it goes wrong, and there's an issue of safety or similar, make the situation and you safe, and then immediately contact your supervisor, or a research ethics advisor, or as a last resort, us, in the Office for Research. And I say well, us as a last resort because you'll have to spend more time explaining to us than you would to someone who knows what you're talking about. And number two, don't, please don't try and fix the problem yourself. Whatever it is, you will make it worse. I tell you this from years of experience dealing with people like yourselves who unwittingly find themselves on the wrong side of the research integrity system because they thought they could fix it. Don't. Yes, okay, it's a mistake. We will solve it for you. Uh, have you, or have any of you heard horror stories of people getting into serious trouble? Well, there's a reason for that. We fixed it. <laughs> it wasn't that people didn't find themselves in that situation. It was that we could fix it. <laughs> the classic one was a PhD student who was doing work with very high-profile people who... Here at Griffith. Here at Griffith. Not in, not in this school, uh, and had guaranteed them confidentiality because they were asking uh, these very high-profile people to discuss mental health issues which they either had or had had in the past. Um, <clears throat> and then when their paper, when their thesis was submitted, they were identified, people were identified in it. And the reviewer wrote back to the dean of the Griffith Graduate School saying, have they got approval for this? And the dean contacted me and I looked it up and no, they didn't. They got wind of what was happening and contacted some of the participants and tried to get them to retrospectively complete consent forms to be identified. Oh, that made it so much worse. Yeah, oh gee, what poor judgment. What were the consequences after that? All they done, their data was just gone. At that point, you cannot collect data unethically. And we couldn't, because some of it was identified and some wasn't, we couldn't tell which bits were which. So their entire PhD was jumped at the point where they, after they'd submitted their thesis, they decided, yeah, they were this close to getting booted out. Before they tried to solve the problem they they anyway. what were the consequences before? If, if they got help from the HRSC? We would have gone back to them and told them how to rewrite the thesis, taking yeah. out the identified yeah. bits, so that it can just keep going oh, okay. forward. That so they're operating within their ethics approval, basically. Mm -hmm. That could have been fixed. So they, because it's like a typo, oh, approval, really. Approval, but didn't follow the approval. That's right. Yeah, they moved outside of the approval. But we can fix that. <laughs> what I can't do is give you retrospective ethics approval. That can never happen. What I can do, though, is I, if a breach happens of the codes or the national statement, we have to fix that. And to do that, I may have to take action, which is effectively the same as giving you retrospective approval for a, for a variation to your ethics approval. So I know that sounds technical and you don't need to know all the details of how we make this work and how we report it in HMRC. Suffice to say, as I say, don't fix it yourself. Call us. We will fix it. Okay, last one.
Ethics approval is a process. I expect that all of you who are here today will not get to resubmit because you know what you're looking for. Provisional approval uh, basically is approval in principle. It means, yes, good, terrific stuff. There's a couple of things here, but there's one or two things that are serious and we'd like you to fix them. So send us back the information we're asking for here. And at that point, we'll send you over back either conditional or full approval and off you go. Conditional approval is generally things like your supervisor or the head of school haven't done their bit, but it's got nothing to do with you. So if you get from the ethics, from it'll be an email to you, copied to the other members of the research team, that says, congratulations, you have conditional approval, you can start immediately, in full. You just need to address the questions or conditions that have been set. Generally speaking, there's only a handful. Uh, so the same goes for full approval, off you go, nothing more to respond. You'll get something from us in about a year's time asking for a progress report. Provisional approval, you must not start until you've addressed the, at least the major conditions. If you're not sure what they are, give me a call and I can identify them in a short of time. Give me a call, I'll identify the ones that you need to do right now and then I'll upgrade it to conditional approval. Kim Madison, who's the other senior policy officer, will give you the same advice. Janelle can give you the same advice, but she prefers to check with us before she does. When in doubt, call one of those people. Just don't use that number for Janelle. She actually works here now. Her extension is 52069. Yes. We just want to modify that phone number to extension 52069. That's the Nathan campus, but wherever you are, it'll work. She was based at Gold Coast for a while. Yep. Okay, so the beginning is Yes. And the others are all correct. And that's basically it. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.